I'm going to read first in Portuguese and then the same paragraph in English. Se fosse uma cria do nosso tempo, Sísifo leria o mito de Sísifo. Chegaria ao ponto em que não entenderia mais nada, nem mesmo a liberdade que conseguir encontrar em seu castigo. Were he a product of our time, Sisyphus would have read the myth of Sisyphus. He would have reached that point where he no longer understood a thing, not even the freedom he could find in his punishment. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. You just heard author and literary translator Daniel Galera read from his new novel, 20 After Midnight. We played a clip in Portuguese and English. This latest novel from the acclaimed Brazilian writer was just published in the United States in translation. When Galera wrote this novel, he was living in Porto Alegre, Brazil, during a time of crisis as a heat wave, transportation strike, and violence made the city feel like an apocalyptic version of itself. Known as a keen observer of the millennial mindset, Galera's novels reflect a sense of sustained anxiety. 20 After Midnight's U.S. release comes at a time when Brazil and the United States top the global list in COVID-19 cases and deaths. Two countries, different hemispheres, a lot in common. My guest today is author Daniel Galera. He was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and now lives in Porto Alegre. He wrote and edited literary websites and was one of the founders of an influential independent publishing house, Livros do Mal. His most recent novel, 20 After Midnight, was just published by Penguin in the United States. Galera has been named one of the most influential young Brazilian writers today. His works have been translated into 12 languages. In fact, Galera is also a literary translator, having translated books by authors David Mitchell and Zadie Smith. Joining me from Porto Alegre, Brazil, to discuss his latest work is Daniel Galera. Daniel, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you. Um, It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for, for having me. You have lived in um, Porto Alegre, which is in the southern part of Brazil, and Sao Paulo. Both of these locations are featured in your uh, new novel, which I believe is your fifth novel, 20 After Midnight. Can you tell us something about how the threads in your life inspired this novel? Just like some characters in the book, I I have lived in both cities, uh, Porto Alegre and Sao Paulo, and I have moved back and forth a few times. But uh, I have spent most of my life here in in Porto Alegre. Uh, My family is from here, and I've been living here now for 10 years already. A lot of my writing is set right here. In the case of this novel, uh, 20 After Midnight, the idea for the novel came up to me in a particular time here uh, in Porto Alegre, It was the month of January of 2014. That's the moment where the the story starts in the book. That month specifically, I I experienced a great uh, distress with everything that was going on in the world in general, but but in Porto Alegre specifically. There was a severe heat wave at that month, uh, more than anything I remember experiencing. 
Porto Alegre, even though we are in the south of Brazil, uh, which usually is cold in the winter, uh, our, our summers are very hot. And that year was the hottest summer in my recollection. And this, on top of that, uh, workers in public transportation were uh, having a strike. So there was no bus. And uh, the city was empty because it was the summer holidays. So that was a little bit apocalyptic by itself. And we were also living through very violent times. There were a lot of robberies and murders, and, and it felt really dangerous just to walk the streets. It was the first time in my life that I was afraid to, you know, I was at my home trying to decide if it was worth going outside to buy some bread or something, because so many incidents were going on in our neighborhood. And on top of everything, Brazil was in the, in the middle of intense political fights. There were big demonstrations uh, on the streets since the year before, 2013, uh, against transportation fares, against corruption, and even against the, the World Cup, the, the upcoming World Cup in Brazil. So I was shaken by that period here in Porto Alegre. And I started to wonder what kind of apocalypse was really going on, because this led me to think about the difference, difference of talking about the end of times in 2014 and talking about the end of times in the turn of the millennium back in 1999. So this inspired me to create the, the plot of this novel and these characters. Uh, they are millennial, uh, millennials in crisis with all these pre-apocalyptic events that seem to never come to a conclusion. And for me, the setting for that investigation had to be Porto Alegre, which is the city where uh, I came to experience those fears and those anxieties myself. What I do know about you is that you are a, uh, a keen observer of the millennial mindset. And what you do in the novel is you take on issues of debt. I mean, there's a huge problem with crushing student debt in the United States. There's a uh, you talk about dependence on family and a general frustration with society. So based on your your body of work and this novel in particular, 20 After Midnight, what, what do you like readers to think about with respect to millennials' place in, and their role in community? Even before the, 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 the pandemics around the world, this, this rise of, of political extreme right also, that is happening in Brazil and, in a sense, in the United States too, in my view. And in many ways, this book, to read it now, is very different from reading it in 2016 when it was first published. And I don't think the novel was predictive in any significant sense, but I think the novel takes a picture of a feeling that was going around, at least here in Brazil, uh, that has to do with all this trouble we are, we are having right now with democracy and uh, other sorts of political uh, turmoil that even before the pandemics were, were causing a lot of problems. My characters are millennials as myself, more or less. And when I set to write this novel specifically, I was trying to raise questions about what kind of dreams and, and goals and uh, ideologies uh, millennials were fed by their parents, by society and, and education and so on, and how those beliefs and those ideals were challenged by what, uh, by everything that came to happen in the last 10 or 15 years. This, this gen, uh, generation to which I belong was made to believe that there was a clear future ahead of them. We had the rise of digital technology. Uh, we had relative uh, economical stability. 
and also liberal ideals were convincing many of us uh, that we could really be whatever we wanted. And that's some combination of self-esteem, determination, and, and you know, faith in capitalism would lead to personal and professional uh, fulfillment. But the world that was really waiting for us in our adult lives were, was another world entirely, I think. So it is a world of capitalist and environment crisis, a world of increasing social tension, a world that is full of you know, chaos and precarity. Uh, it's very hard for a millennial to imagine uh, a future uh, right now. But we need to deal with the world that we have and, and make the best choices and learn to, you know, to be political agents in whatever way we can, do what we can to, to find hope and, and, and live a bearable world to future generations. So the novel, uh, 20 After Minute, is focused on the crisis, on the personal crisis of three such people. It is mostly about their personal crisis, but the point is that uh, some kind of collective enlightenment must happen if we hope to change things for the better. And I don't think the novel offers any clear answers or points any directions uh, about how we could do that, unfortunately. I don't think I have those answers clear in my mind. Uh, but the novel is more about this permanent, sta permanent, permanent state of anxiety and and the characters feel trapped uh, in a way in, in a search for relief. So it is, the book is a li a li sounds a little bit pessimistic, I think, uh, but I believe that it is necessary to go into that pessimism, understand it, if we really want to, to find ways of making things better, of feeling some hope. So um, I hope the novel will, will, will convey that feeling. I want to go back to something you said about collective enlightenment and hover there for just a moment. One, one of the things that comes through in the novel so, so well, and I really latched onto, were your observations about digital life, social media, and in fact, one, one very specific thing, a TED Talk. A TED Talk has become so popular around the world for distilling a very complicated subject in 15 minutes. And you have a really intense uh, few scenes in the novel using the TED Talk as a kind of way to illuminate some provocative uh, intellectual thought. And it's also used, at least as I was reading it, sort of used, used to understand how the individual delivering the TED Talk might feel some degree of, I don't know if self-conscious is the right term, or some anxiety about maybe oversimplifying something that this individual knows so much about. What frustrates you about platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and social media as it exists today? Um, yes, I think you were right when you say in, in that scene um, that we, uh, the, the character Antero uh, does a TED Talk. And there is a little bit of irony and, and some criticism about the, the way these talks sometimes are, are created and delivered. And I have watched some great TED Talks, uh, of course, and, but I also came to identify a pattern on them. And it's a kind of rhetoric that irritates me a little bit, uh, that seems to force all kinds of complex ideas into a, into a narrative of personal success. Uh, you know, it has that flavor of a self-help self uh, book. 
And so there's a little bit of a joke in that scene of, of the book, or in the scene of my novel, because Antero, the character, uh, he's a bright young man. He's very intelligent. He's read a lot. But he's also very cynical and, and full of himself. And he plans his TED Talk as a provocation to the public, like he were some kind of Trojan horse, you know, bringing uh, something new to the table and breaking from the formula and uh, you know, bringing some havoc to the event or, and so on. But of course, uh, the reader is well aware that he, he's also a narcissist and, and he's not as subversive as he, he believes. So uh, I expect the reader to, 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 to sense their irony about what the character is trying to do in that, in that moment. And about, uh, you asked me about uh, Instagram and, and Facebook. And yeah, I left those platforms a few years ago. And the reason, uh, on, on one hand, I am old enough to remember how it was to experience the web in, in the early days. I am 41 years old now. And I was a teenager when the, the, the web became more widely available uh, here in Brazil. I remember how everything felt more spontaneous and unpredictable. And also um, the way personal connections that were created uh, on the net uh, felt deeper and more interesting. Hmm. Surfing the web was a constant uh, discovery. So nowadays it frustrates me that the internet has become this sort of private backyard of a few corporations that exploit our emotional uh, vulnerabilities to mine our data and so on for profit uh, without our full uh, awareness or, or consent. But also platforms like uh, Facebook and Instagram, they present themselves as uh, facilitators of spontaneous human interaction. But in truth, um, they are built and, and also programmed in such a way that some kinds of behaviors uh, are favored. Uh, they feed us what we already know and what we already want because they, they, they map every move we make uh, when surfing the web. And these will narrow our possibilities of learning, of changing our minds, you know, and of being exposed to unexpected ideas. So, and we know what kind of social and political effects that eventually came to happen. The rise of radical political stances that are taking us to dangerous places politically. We can see clearly now that it can be disastrous. I mentioned in the introduction that you have translated some very impressive works. Um, you've translated works by authors David Mitchell and Zadie Smith. How does how does this process find you? I started to do to do translation from English into Portuguese uh, when I was very young, actually twenty three years old, maybe. Hmm. It's funny because when I was even younger, uh, I was already writing stories and I had published two self-published books. And I had this idea that to become a translator, you had to be this very experienced, you know, literary person, at least 40 or 50 years old. I don't know what I thought. And, but what happened is um, my own publisher here in Brazil, they, they asked me to translate uh, a couple of um, children's books. Right. And also there was a book called the blog of uh, the Bagda, Bagda blog. It was this web blog that was written by this, this young blogger in Baghdad during the, the, the war. I don't remember, the, the Guardian published a book. Anyway, they, 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 they thought I could handle that because I was into the internet and the web blog uh, scene. So this came to me. 
And I did these translations to, for the money, and I had no idea if I was good or not doing that. But they lacked the results, so the, uh, I started to get more proposals of, of translation, one after the other. And it came to a point that I was able to, to pick a few books I would like to translate and, and offer them to, to publishers. And in some cases, it worked. Um, it was very important in my, my trajectory as a translator. When I translated, along with a, another friend who is also a translator, we did the, the Trainspotting uh, novel by Irvine Welsh, hmm. which is written in a very specific uh, idiom from, from Scotland, the, the called Scott. And nobody wanted to do that book because it's so hard to get into that language. But we were such great fans that we read all his, his books in, in the original, in English. And so we sort of force learned his language. And we, we did a test. We translated a few chapters and sent it to a publisher. And they liked it the, the way we were doing it. So we eventually we, we became translators of Irvin Welsh in Brazil. That's amazing. There was a, very, there was a landmark, as you say, in my, my work as a translator. And from then on... Um, I tr for other books that I, I translated because I offered them for publishers were, for example, uh, Benjamin Kunkel's novel Indecision. Uh, it's a young American writer and essayist as well that I like a lot. And more recently, um, I did a David Forster Wallace um, collection of essays that I chose a few of his most important essays. And we, we, we did a, an, um, obviously a collection here in Brazil so that was my idea too. But mostly nowadays, publishers offer me books to translate. And I was lucky that they offered me thing, writers I like to read, like David Mitchell and, and Zadie Smith, as you mentioned. Uh, I translated John Cheever, which I absolutely love, and a few others. So I have been lucky in the, in the sense that I get to translate authors I really enjoy, because it's not always the case. So it goes uh, both ways. There are instances where you see a book you feel should be in translation and you suggest it to a publisher. And other times the publisher will come to you and uh, after they've already um, purchased the novel for distribution in Brazil and ask you to translate. It's both ways. And in Brazil, uh, more than 50% of our uh, book market is from foreign uh, books. So there's a lot of stuff to translate. And of course, of course, English being the main language in, in, in the market. So there's never a shortage of interesting novels and stories to, to, to a translator uh, from English into Portuguese. Well, obviously, you're not intimidated by books that have, um, as you said, a particular idiom or a lot of specific kind of colloquial phrases. And, you know, this makes me think of something I remember the great uh, novelist from Turkey, Orhan Pamuk, said, he, um, he said when his books are translated, he becomes very depressed because when he's writing in Turkish, there's a very, uh, very musical sense that informs how the sentence structure comes together on the page. And that doesn't always translate neatly. And he has a, quite a collaborative process, I know, with his English translator. Now that you're seeing your work translated into different languages. And I think the count is at least 12 languages. How do you feel about Portuguese coming together in English or Italian or Spanish? Are you, are you comfortable that the translation is capturing your very unique voice? 
Um, yes, I think I am. I, I am aware that many writers don't feel so good uh, thinking about uh, how their, their books are being translated into another language. Uh, David Foster Wallace was one of them. I remember from one interview he gave that he was horrified by thinking about his books being you know, not accurately translated into another language, so he preferred not to think about that. In the case of uh, English, of course, uh, I can appreciate the translator's work because I read in English well enough to give my opinion, and usually I get involved in the process. They ask me, they send me, they send me the, the, the manuscript of the translation, I give my opinion, and there is a back and forth between me and the translator. Uh, in other languages, I can't really read. So, you, I, but I just, I grew up, I grew to, to trust translators. But usually I, I have to trust other people and other uh, readers from other countries. You know? Yeah. My, my father, for example, he reads in, in French very well. So he was able to give his opinion about the, the, the French translation of, of my books. Hmm. And in some other cases, I just ask readers, you know, and they, they will comment about the translation. But as a translator myself, I... I feel that a good translation is not exactly, not, not necessarily the most uh, exact translation. No? To be truthful to a book in another language involves uh, being an author, in a sense, when you are working in, in translation. You have to, to find a way to write that over again. And sometimes the, the best translation for a sentence will be a very literal translation. But in some cases, you have to work from scratch. And so there's a lot of creative work that goes into translating. The only way I can relate to that is to trust my translators to, to be these writers, sort of saying, in, in liking the book and feeling that they really want to, to be truthful to what, what I wrote and make it available to in, in their own language. And, you know, maybe it's... It's just in my heart, but I, I tend to trust them, so I don't I don't suffer with this. Daniel, before I let you go, how has life been for you this past year in Porto Alegre as COVID rages on? There was a reference in the late late in the book that I really loved. A character has a tattoo. It says, "I think it's R T E S." The letters standing for mm -hmm. "Remember to Enjoy Solitude." Yeah. So I guess my question is, are you enjoying your solitude or has it felt very confining this year? The truth is there's not a lot of solitude in isolation and in quarantine. I live with my, my wife and my, 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 my kid. I have a three-year-old daughter and we are just you know, locked in together. And it's great. And it's, sometimes it's very difficult as well. Here in Porto Alegre, there were uh, strict quarantine measures uh, since March in the, the outbreak of the, the, the pandemic here. Mm. Here in Brazil, we have the situation where uh, the, the federal government, our, our, our president, uh, is just doing all he can to make things worse. And governors in our several states, they are mostly you know, listening to science and trying to do, or, or at least they were until recently, trying to make things better with quarantine measures and, and so on. So in Porto Alegre, we had a good start. Uh, there were quarantine measures that were adequate and it helped delay the infections for a couple of months. But right now, we are going through the peak of cases here. So the hospitals are full of COVID cases and it's not a good picture. So it's a time to, to be you know, very, very careful right. uh, to stay healthy and you know, not put other people in danger. And it's been very scary and frustrating, of course. I think that's the case for everyone, everywhere. Mm -hmm. This whole thing about President Bolsonaro just adds to the suffering. 
Um, no, he advocates doubtful treatments, just as President Trump. Uh, he meets his supporters without wearing a mask. Um, he jokes on television about the death tolls, and it's it's a horror show. And some days this can be overwhelming. Um, I get depressed. My, my family gets depressed. Uh, usually, the next day we feel a little better, but it's it's a you know ups and downs. Yeah. Most Brazilians feel a lot of rage about what's going on. Um, it is hard to find work for most people, um, but me and my family, we are safe. We have access to good medical treatment if, if we need. Uh, to the most vulnerable citizens, it's much, much worse. Right. And it really breaks my heart to think about what you know, people in worse conditions than me and my family, what they're going on. It's, it's heartbreaking. And we are inside our home trying to create a new daily routine every week trying to work, uh, have some quality time together whenever we can, have some fun whenever we can. Well, you did answer uh, one question I wanted to, to ask is that you are actively working on a new novel. You, con- confinement is challenging, but as a writer, you've got to keep the pen moving, and it sounds like you're doing that. In the first couple of months of the, the, the quarantine, uh, of course, we were just trying to have some kind of healthy routine, and I couldn't work, but uh, eventually a new the work process was possible, and I was thinking about a book containing three very long stories or very short novels. I'm not sure how I would call them, but it's going to be three stories in, in one book. And one of them takes place in 2018 on the weekend of the election of, of Bolsonaro in Brazil. Mm. So it's very contemporary, has to do with our reality right now. Right. And the other two stories are set in the near future and they're a little bit uh, science fiction more or less it's the first time i delve into that territory i'm a very um, i love to read science fiction but i never was able to write it and i don't think i'm writing proper science fiction but it has some elements and it's, it's feeling very uh, stimulating for me to to go into into that territory so it's two stories that take place a couple of decades from now. Uh, there's different technologies. There's different issues going on. And I'm midway through it. So every day, if I can find one hour, sometimes two hours to work, it's amazing. And I hope I can finish by the end of the year. My guest today is Daniel Galera. He is the author of 20 After Midnight. It was just published in the United States by Penguin Press. Daniel, thank you so much for joining the program today. It has been really enlightening and insightful to hear from you both in terms of your your new novel and your life as a literary translator. Thank you, Laurie. This was a great conversation. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. You can find Daniel Galera on Twitter. His handle is a large denial. I'll say that again, a large denial. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. A special thank you to John Haymaker for production input and to Thomas Gerard for engineering. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.